This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Beautyo Books. Remember that ABA members get a discount on all orders from Beautyo Books. You can check them out at beautyobooks.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is the end of the month. We've got a great This Month in Birding panel lined up for February 2023. But before we get to that, I want to acknowledge and apologize for the audio screw up we had in last week's episode. It was one of those, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong sort of situations. Essentially, the commentary from Cassie Karstens and the credits ran at the same time, which meant that you can't hear either of them. And while losing the credits is maybe not a huge deal, losing the commentary was frustrating. It was a good one. This was all exacerbated by the fact that I was in Colombia when I posted the episode and when it went live. More on that in a future episode. And thus not at my computer to, one, notice the problem before it went up, and two, solve the problem quickly once we started getting messages about it. We did eventually correct it, and a repaired version of the episode was released if you download. But if you downloaded the episode in the morning of last Thursday, perhaps automatically when it dropped, you probably got the messed up version. If you want to hear the corrected version, and I encourage you to do so, it is the one that is available on our website, aba.org slash podcast, and the episode that you get when you download that episode 0707 from any podcasting program should be automatic now. Sorry about all that. One giant yacker and seven years of episodes isn't a bad track record, all told. So let's get to the fun stuff. This month in birding with Jody Allaire, Sarah Bloomers, and Nick Lund. We talk Stellar Jay splits, Hawaiian Island restoration, dodos and our favorite bird displays right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of February 2023. It's been a slow period for Rare Birds, but notable for the continent was an immature gray heron in Yarmouth County, Nova Scotia. Gray heron is the old world equivalent of our familiar great blue heron and just about annual in eastern Canada these days, though there are records from Alaska and elsewhere on the east coast as far south as Virginia as well. The bird has been accompanied by local great blues, making for a useful opportunity for comparison. While most gray herons in North America are presumed to come from Europe, there are some suspected to be breeding in the Lesser Antilles in northern South America, a path that was pioneered by cattle egrets decades ago and could potentially be a reservoir from which vagrants come to the ABA area. That is all I have for you this week. I told you it was light, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. February might be the shortest month, but that doesn't mean it gets the short shrift when it comes to this month in birding. We've got a great panel this month that absolutely adores birds, as is appropriate for the season. Uh, let's introduce them now. Our friend from Birds Canada, where he is the Director of Community Engagement, producer of the Warblers podcast, fresh from giving those stuffed shirt MPs in Ottawa what for when it comes to birds and community science. It's Jody Allaire. Hi, Jody. Hey, Nate. Hey, everyone. Great to be back. I'm glad they let you come back from uh, from the Capitol. Uh, from the Bird Shirt podcast on hiatus on Apple Podcasts, but not in our hearts, it's Sarah Bloomers. Thanks for joining us again, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be back. And one of our oldest friends, now tied with Jordan Rudder for most of this month in birding appearances, Whoa. interestingly enough. Yeah, right? It's the birdist, Nick Lund. Right on. Welcome back, Nick. Hello. Yeah. Thank you for having me back. Hello, yep. everyone. Let's, uh, let's talk birding bombshells. eBird, since its arrival, has very much driven the way in which we bird more than anything since the invention of the binoculars, I imagine. 
Uh, they made a pretty significant change recently in the way they approach introduced exotic species and made some decisions about where and how these birds will count on your list totals, uh, which once I started really thinking about it is a pretty big deal, particularly if you are a competitive birder in any way. I uh, lost a couple species on my local lists, my county, which is probably, probably for the best. So have your totals changed? What do you think about all this? I lost mute swan. I lost muscovy duck which neither of which are countable. They're both kind of out there, but I put them on the list because I wanted to get a complete checklist. And so it's just as well that eBird pulled it off my, my county list. So um, did you all use, uh, excuse me, did you all lose any, any birds? Does, does that matter to you? Do you care? Well, I, I lost, I didn't lose any from my ABA, my nationwide list, because yeah. I was that guy who went in and cut stuff out. Oh my goodness. Now you don't have Even to. though I had seen it, you know, I would sort of prune things and it was always really unsatisfying yes. um, that these were birds that I had seen in the world that I wanted to keep a record of, but because they weren't countable, I, I locked them off so I could sort of not have to do the math in my head. Yeah. Um, uh, so I really like this change, and I think it looks great, and I think it came out well. On my main list, I lost ring-necked pheasant, mm. um, which is a, you know a, a used to be more established and now is sort of not. Um, so uh, uh, it's good. I think overall this has the effect of, um, I don't know, it's just being right. You know, there's a lot Fair of, enough. especially top 100 type listers would always have that one person who was ahead of them because they counted, you know, some chucker <laughs> that was released. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And so, uh, when you couldn't really say anything now, that thing is taken care of. So I, right. I really like this update. I think it looks great. And, uh, uh, thank you bird for doing it. I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, great that they, uh, or that we, they went ahead and made all these changes with eBird. I think, yeah, that's right. They they did ask for a lot of community involvement, local. There was a lot of input, so certainly they, here in Canada. Yeah. You know, there was there was definitely input. Uh, those of us are part of the eBird Canada team. Um, uh, yeah, no, it, it needed to be done. I think it's important to be you know tracking these uh, introduced and exotic species and even provisional mm-hmm. species within eBird lists. I think it's uh, it's better to have a complete list of all the things you see without having to like lot things yeah. off you know before entering i think i think it's just a more accurate way to document this stuff sort of going forward and it's you know and it's kind of interesting right and i think there's some so could be some really interesting studies that come out of this uh you know marking things as exotic or escapee or provisional mm-hmm. I, I think that's actually i know i'm i'm all for it i'm i think it's a very positive step in terms of data accuracy and and I think, you know, for, yeah, I, I'm sure some people were disappointed that their, maybe their life list went down, but I, 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 to be honest, could care less. I think it's, uh, I think it's good to have this stuff. So, uh, yeah, no, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. And I think it was a lot of work too. A lot yeah, of work to I think it was too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a you know educational piece too. I just came back from a week in Puerto Rico where I don't know the birds as mm-hmm. well as I do in the U.S. And now I know which ones, you know, are, are for sure uh, exotics or yeah. escapees or, or whatever there is, um, it does help sort of a, um, a more casual birder, uh, understand the, the wildlife a little better. That's a good point is you think about places like, uh, South Texas, South Florida, where there's just tons of escapees, there's parrots all over the place that, you know, some of the populations that are been established and been around for a long time and some are not. And so it's hard, it's hard to keep track of that stuff. Like I'm, i ostensibly work for an organization that tries to keep track of that and i can't keep track of that stuff it's hard to know what i know what you can count and and there's a certain arbitrariness to that but you know any opportunity we have to all be on the same page i think is uh a good thing i probably will open a can of worms with like every question that i ask let's do Um, it um so 
I don't use eBird as often as I should. So my understanding may not be as well. But like, at what point do you no longer count those birds as like escapees, like parrot colonies that have lived there for very long times? I mean, do we just consider them native now? Because it's going to continue to happen with climate change and loss of habitat. So it's just interesting to see this change, but also you know what do we consider to not be native yeah it's a good question yeah it's it's arbitrary and it's very gray (laughs) and there's some some speed it's different with every single species so you kind of have to take it like one at a time Mm -hmm. i know there's there has been talk about take south texas for instance where there are red crown parrots and green parakeets those are those are native to northeast mexico so they're not the wild populations are not really found all that far away from south texas and it's reasonable to believe that some of those birds came from there. Like they flew over their habitat is being, there's some, there's some habitat degradation in that part of Mexico. And they went to the closest parrot colonies they could find. And there were these kind of half escapee established parrots that have been in South Texas and Brownsville and Harlingen for years and years and years. And they just kind of put in with those flocks. And so you've got this flock that's probably part wild part escapee at this at a certain point it doesn't matter anymore and they're just there it's weird it's it's complicated <laughs> i guess is, is the answer which is not a satisfying answer in any way but uh it is what it is yeah it's more just food for thought yeah for sure hey that's nothing if not birding is nothing if not food for thought opportunities for food for thought so yeah you have to go to the midwest and get your ring neck pheasant nick come to detroit <laughs> yeah. They have them up there. Are they just cruising down the street in Detroit? Are they countable there? (laughs) There's actually there is a documentary about them. If you no joke, really? Yeah, there's a documentary about them in Detroit. Oh wow! Well, as I've always complained, it's the state bird of South Dakota too, which um, uh, I think is goofy. But uh, (laughs) they do have a lot of them in the Great Plains. When I was in Kansas last year for a for a bird festival, like you're driving you're driving across Kansas and you just see them like running off the side of the roads in the ditch and flying along. Like they're, they're pretty common out there. There's a lot of them. Well, and they're present in Maine too. They're, they're famously on Monhegan Island. Oh. Um, and that was, they were a real fun species to see uh, when you made the trip out there. But I, but in recent years, I think they've been supplemented. That population has been mm-hmm. supplemented by some, by some, uh, you know, uh, whatever, release birds. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so it doesn't really meet the, meet the criteria anymore. But hey, you can still enjoy them. Yeah. And that's the thing about, I, I think, this exotics update is that you, you, you want to resist sort of using these uh, little sun icons as a value judgment, right? Yeah, you know, these enough. are still yeah. birds living out in the world, making their way. Um, it's just sort of an educational tool to let you know, uh, you know, how, you know, the history of species maybe or how things go in that particular location. Um, it's not sort of uh, giving you license to dismiss any species. It's true. And it, it's also easier because the eBird takes care of the, uh, whether or not it's quote unquote countable or not. Like, yes. If it's countable, They'll they'll mark it on your list. If it's not, it'll go on the little supplemental list. Either way, you don't have to worry about it. You just count the birds, put it on the checklist, and and take care of it. Which is which is the great advance of eBird that it takes care of all that <laughs> stuff for you. Always. Thank goodness. <laughs> yep. So I'm going to chat about this uh, paper uh, about Stellar's jays. It's called "Deep Ecomorphological and Genetic Divergence in Stellar's Jays." Uh, it, it was uh, published in Ecology and Evolution uh, back in November, and uh, and it's I have to say excellent excellent paper. Um, the the researchers uh, did a 
phenomenal job and went did a really deep dive into looking at the different populations of Stellar's Jays within the United States um, and, and really breaking down kind of three major types of Stellar's Jays. So I, I want just, to just talk a little bit about this because this is this pattern of divergence that you get that that they're proposing is happening here with Stellar's jays is, is something you see with several bird species mm-hmm. out west. And it's really quite interesting. And and now that I do live out west out here in Alberta, uh, I'm getting more familiar with these. And, and I think I, I wanted to, so I'll talk about Stellar's jays, but I wanted to compare this a bit with sort of the the opposite case, which is the uh, the, the Western flycatcher, Pacific Sloping. Oh, Pacific yeah. Sloping. Okay. I There's a really interesting comparison between these two these two groups of birds here. But look, uh, you know, the bottom line, um, when I first looked at this paper, I was very excited. Th- this was not a surprise uh, to me at all, knowing the distribution of these birds, especially when you're dealing with species that live in mountain ranges, especially year round, and there is separation with, with mountain ranges. You see this across the world. You know, Col- Columbia is famous mm-hmm. for this, right? Every single mountain range has a as a different breakdown of, of, of species. So this, this is not new. And of course, we should be seeing this in Western North America as well. Uh, so they looked at, they did you know, genetic sampling. They looked at um, the, the three different morphotypes. Which, so there's a coastal population of, of Stellar's jays. There's this interior population. And then there's the one in sort of the Southeast range, which, which they coined the, the Rocky Mountain population, which is a little bit confusing, to be honest, because the Rocky Mountains actually stretch, you know, all the way up to Canada. But anyway, <laughs> and if you look at the, um, if you have the Sibley Guide to Birds, you know, uh, Sibley illustrated these three types very well as very co- sort of distinctive subspecies. And they have a variety of like the coastal birds are much darker, mm-hmm. right? And, and it'll have a little bit of blue. And then when you get into the interior and the Rocky Mountain populations, uh, you get that sort of white eye stripe with the blue lines and really, really sharp looking birds. So I think it was there for the picking, I think, to be able to, to do a study. And I think that's, you know, what the authors jumped right in. They, uh, they were like, well, you know, no one's really done a deep dive into this. And uh, it was absolutely, if you look at this and white-breasted nuthatches, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's, they're all going this way. We've got a fairly separated population. But it brings up a couple questions. The, the big one being, uh, how different is different enough? And how and how separated is separate enough? If that made any sense whatsoever, I'm not sure if it did. But anyway, and so it's really interesting. And I have to admit, when I first looked at this paper, oh, I I wanted I I scrolled. It was a very lengthy paper. I scrolled down. I wanted to see, okay, where are their sampling areas? And as soon as I saw the map of sampling areas, you know, the the big red flag went off. And and it's the thing that that I have to say sort of drives me nuts. Um, with these types of papers, like anywhere in the world, and that the area of study is there are arbitrary boundaries to the area of study that do not take its entire population into account. So, and in this case, it was the Canadian border. Even though there there is a sample site from southern Vancouver Island, it's still all be- below the 49th parallel. And of course, Mexico was a a the southern border of this. So they were really focusing on this kind of western u.s perspective and meanwhile stellar jays go all the way up <laughs> yeah they're all over the place they go all the way down, down into Mexico. costa rica yeah <laughs> like holy smokes right so so i think it's i think the the work is excellent for sure i would have liked to see in any paper that's like suggesting a split 
to be looking at, uh, to be sampling across the entire range of a species. I think that was the thing that, that I did not like. But I have to, that being said, the, the sampled sites, even within the Western US, it, it is pretty clear there, there is a clear uh, split that's going on here. Certainly with the Rocky Mountain population of birds, which look very, very different already. And they mm-hmm. actually have a longer crest, right? They're, they yeah. have, they're really, they are quite different. Um, there is definitely a divergence going on between that population and the coastal interior ones. Um, not sure there's enough to really separate out coastal interior. That being said, you know, the AOS has pretty high standard when it comes to how much is enough. And as we've seen from things like, you know, the yellow rumped warbler uh, papers with splits that I, I thought for sure was going to, was going to yeah. pass. It did not. It's not a, it's not a sure thing that this kind of split is going to be uh, accepted. So. It just occurred to me that you probably outlined the reason why they will end up rejecting it, which is that it doesn't include the birds in Canada. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's, and that's a problem. Now, did they need to do that in order to identify this, this Rocky mountain population? They, no, they did not. But um, I think just from a, you know, from a species understanding perspective of, of stellar jays, I think it, it would be good to see the entire population. Now, the, the authors mm-hmm. did already say that there's some other studies in the works, especially looking at the Mexican population. And I think yeah. there's probably more divergence going on here, uh, certainly physically, right? They, they look very different. So yeah. I, I, think, um, I think there's more to come here. It would be better if this was all sort of done at once. That was my only thing, but... Uh, <laughs> I, d- I did not so, see this so quickly devolving into a, de- uh, a, uh, a grieved Canadian... Um, Discussion <laughs> surprised me. I didn't. It always seems to happen yeah. when I'm on this. I don't know. That's right. It's, yeah, we yeah, gotta be the voice. We gotta be the voice here. a little bit. Um, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think sampling uh, those populations above uh, the Tim Hortons line and um, uh, for, uh, and then below into the sort of Mexican range and down into Nicaragua, right? Casillas um, go. I mean, a lot to go. I mean, I I do. Uh, I think I'm most interested in this, and Jody, and something you said early is that um, you know when people are birding in the you know tropical mountain ranges, people are very comfortable with understanding that there are species um, that sort of move you know that that are different very quickly in different ranges, even very close by, and that's something that we just don't really do in that much, even though we have yeah, our own yeah. mountain ranges. Um, and it's it it just strikes me as strikes yeah, me as odd, yeah, right, it? that yeah. That that we don't sort of think of that same concept as applying to our own, you know, gigantic and separated mountain ranges. Um, so I, I'm I'm excited to read more and learn more about what what they find because it, it does seem you know pretty clear that these are uh, you know I don't know and I'm not going to get it, I don't know you know what's the species and not but there are differences between these birds very clearly they look pretty different yeah 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 I'm definitely in a split them all and let uh, eBird sort them out. <laughs> Uh, back on that philosophy right. on a lot of this. Okay, stuff. so so this so this brings up my other point. I wanted to raise about this because there's a lot of sister species groups in in the West, Canadian yeah. and U.S. West that that sort of fit this, right? And, and I think you know they've already split some of them, like uh, scrub grouse, jay, western scrub jay, scrub mm-hmm. jay. You know, uh, the, the, sort of the list goes on, but not all birds that that have this distribution uh, are reproductively isolated, right? And you know, black black headed grosbeak. Mountain chickadee, you know, they don't all yeah, do this. Yeah. And I think one example I want to bring up because it was also just recently published in North American in the latest issue of North American Birds is the mm-hmm. the article by Alec Hopping called "Unraveling Western Flycatchers: A Case Against the Split." 
Yeah. And so this is this is a, a group of birds or two birds, Pacific Slope and Cordilleran Flycatcher, that essentially have a very similar distribution to, to Stellar's Jays and, and many other birds that, that cover this Western North America range. And that is an interesting example. And I think Alec makes a very compelling case and one that, you know, I certainly agree with that that should never have been split. And there certainly was there is not good enough evidence. Uh, and even speaking to other people that have been involved in some of these studies, yeah. that, that the evidence was really subpar to split them to begin with. And if you look at, you know, like eBird distributions yeah. of these two species, it's, it's hilarious because it's full on. Like in, in one state, it'll be this. And in this province, yeah. it's this. So like it's fully split depending on where you are. And uh, so this is an example of a bird that has a very similar distribution to the Stellis J groupings. But in fact, if you look at call variation and, and the genetic work, it really seems like it's more of a, like a clinal species, mm-hmm. you know, breakdown, like sort of change over time where they're meeting all over the place. And so uh, I think it's, uh, there's kind of an interesting contrast of like two things going on where I think the AOS could uh, hopefully address both of these. One, not enough evidence to have created a split and that we need more work on the, the Western flycatcher. And another one where identifying that Stellar's Jays uh, have actually been separated for, and it was like, the, the, the author's estimate is like four and a half million years uh, because of glacial refugia for, for Stellar's Jays. And uh, so definitely worth looking at that um, a little bit finer. Anyway, just kind of an interesting contrast of two, two publications that, that came out recently. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. If they do end up lumping the Western flycatcher, I know a lot of Eastern birders will be very happy about <laughs> <Yeah>. that. Because <laughs> that bird exists as a splash on a lot of Eastern states and provinces checklists because, yeah, I mean, they're impossible. They're you can't, impossible you can't tell them apart. I, li- like, no. I, I, like, I have some like just a couple hours for me, right? And, and vocalization, you know, I guess. But like there's so, guess, the, exactly. more I, the more I learn about this, I think it's grossly underappreciated the, the range of variability and mm-hmm. and some of those yeah. like flat, like male position notes and all these things that were supposed yeah. to be like stable benchmarks on how they're to not, identify them no yeah no it's exactly. they're not at they're all not. i think it's all and i understand and the, and the, and the work done the, the sample size was so small on the work done uh to split them that it mm-hmm. should never have been split at all so i think there's a bit of a disservice there but uh anyway does it make them any less interesting they're fascinatingly interesting um yeah I look forward to new names for Stellar Shame. That's yes. the thing that I'm looking forward to. I think it's <laughs> Long Crested and Black Crested, which are the yeah. two that are the front runners, which I'm not in love with, but they're they're Long adequate. Crested they're and fine. Black Crested. Yeah, so Long Crested for the Rocky Mountain, the interior one, because they have the longer crest. Okay. And Black Crested for the coastal, because they're the darker birds. And we're sure that that Long Crest, I'm worried about if we call them Long Crested, there'll be another paper in five years being like, well, actually, crest length is variable on these, and some of them don't. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And the crest just, is black, too. Yeah, like, the, crest uh, is black. the Long yeah, Crest is black. Do this right, yeah. maybe. Come on. How about Rocky Mountain? How about Rocky Mountain? How about that? I don't sure. like that name either because it doesn't actually <laughs> like exist through the Rocky Let's Mountains. Just lump right? them. Like, Let's just lump them again. Lump Back them, to Stellar's. Yep. yep. 
Well, that that Western Flycatcher paper was a slam dunk, I think. Matt, that was really eye opening, especially to see that eBird map of uh, I think it was like the uh, Idaho Washington eBird oh, split, where it's just yes. like a straight line down. And I gotta confess, you know, when I, even when oh, I, the times I've been birding out uh, where those two birds are, Arizona and California, you know, I, I've probably marked them down based on what was expected there, and not on some exactly you know right. fancy uh, field note field mark that I found. So um, that's not great. So I'm in favor of uh, following the science especially when it makes birding easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, can I am not trying to overtake this show at all, but I chose no, a total puff. To. I total, <laughs> cho- total puff piece. It's yeah, just a nice it. little puff piece. Can we talk about the dodo instead? Because I'm really geared it. up. <laughs> I was going to save it. I was, Nick's going to come up after the, the <laughs> oh, puff piece. Okay, okay. We're, gonna, uh, we're doing it. We're doing uh, the dodo. Okay. I'm just saving it. Okay. Just saving I'm, it. I'm so ready. Okay. So my, yeah. <laughs> my, mine is just a little puff piece. Um, it's an article published in January by the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. And it's focused on the restoration and monitoring efforts on the Lahua Islet which is a small, uninhabited uh, island off the west coast of Kauai. So this is um, project is led by the Kauai Endangered Seabird Recovery Project and the Division of Forest and Wildlife. And they're monitoring the native seabird species in this area, mostly the Newell Shearwater, uh, the Hawaiian Petrel, and the Bandrup Stormed Petrel, because the uh, island is now rat-free as of 2021, which is great. Um, apparently it's really, really helping those birds. So um, I was really interested in this because of the methodology they're using to try and increase breeding. And also um, they have a new project that's working to attract um, turns to the area. So uh, there are no longer any turns in the Lahua area. So they have created what is the first social attraction project uh, in the Hawaiian islands for them. Um, I was not familiar with this process at all, but this is great. They are basically setting up fake parties. Um, they are doing decoys, mirrors, and sound systems to essentially like catfish the turns yeah. into thinking <laughs> that there are populations there. And it looks like it's working. So that is my beautiful little puff piece that brings some happy news to everybody. I love some happy news. We need it in Hawaii. Um, yeah, and yeah, that was that was really it. There's really not a lot to comment on it other than <laughs> fake fake parties sound great. The whole thing yeah. was that me. I, I I have two comments. One is that it's nice to see um, good news coming from Hawaiian birds. I know the land bird is. situation is awfully grim. The seabird situation is significantly better. What with the this reducing the rats, we talked about that. Peter Harrison a couple weeks ago, you know, they've got cat fences all over in some places too. So the, the seabirds are actually doing pretty well or doing much better in Hawaii and the land birds are still having a rough go of it. But you know, any good news out of Hawaii with the birds there is always really, going to be really good. And um, two, it turns are, turns are really dumb. Like if they're falling <laughs> for this. Um, and Nick, you, you're in Maine. I know that lonely, they've done this maybe. stuff. Yeah, lonely. <laughs> I guess so. That's probably more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know they've done this with like puffins and stuff, and sure. they've done it with cows in Bermuda. So th- this is like a this is like a thing that they do with uh, with seabirds. My seabirds friend, are not uh, the smartest. my friend Sue Schubel from the uh, um, Audubon 
uh, Puffin Project. He is yeah. a, a amazing uh, decoy designer and ships them all yeah. over the world. It is funny. Sometimes you'll be on a uh, a trip to see puffins out here, and you'll see the like, oh man, there's some murs that are sitting perfectly in the sun. I can get wow, perfect. And you're amazing. like, no, they're not. Those aren't. Those. You get closer, you're faked out. Uh, but hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> it makes you feel better about the, you know, birders are always fooled by, you know, the classic uh, Walmart bag is a, is a snowy owl. I guess yeah. Walmart uses blue bags. <laughs> it's a grocery bag is a snowy owl and that sort of stuff. Or decoys. I've been fooled by duck decoys before. Um, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So it goes. You know, I, I, if I was a millionaire, billionaire, whatever air, I would st- I would give all my money to my, mice eradication, rat eradication projects. I, yeah. I, uh, it, it seems the like fact it's a real that good bang works, for your buck. Yeah. Yeah, the South Georgia stuff. I mean, it's just bang for your buck and it works. And I, I love it. Um, but this is a true puff piece because I'm trying to think of hot takes to even, <laughs> yeah. it, like, if someone's, like, what about the rats? So I guess the rat, you're fine <laughs> with killing rats, taking lives? Cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I've heard that's that all argument I got. before, actually. Have you heard that yeah. argument? Do people come yeah. in defense of the rats? Yes. Well, they can live with them then. People with pet rats. Okay, those uh, are different, though. Yeah, those, those are, are those are different. Those are keep different. your rat yeah. keep your rats indoors. Is what rats I always indoors. say. Yeah. Keep your rats <laughs> indoors. Cold, if, if you're cold, they're cold. Bring them in. There's no no defense <laughs> of rats. Uh, I, yeah. I think the only the only controversial element to to any of this is is the is the poisoning part, right? I think right. Yeah. Because a lot of people, and you know, when you spend time in New Zealand, like they, they, New Zealand is taking this very seriously. And there is pushback locally about, you know, sort of mass poisoning of places. And I think there's, there is an opportunity in places like this, where it's successful to, to educate people about why it actually is really important to eliminate uh, non-native mammals. Like this is a great story for yeah. sure. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think but people are always get uneasy about the idea of mass poisoning a part of the landscape, you know, whether it's like a landlocked site or whether it's an island. Um, so people need to know that it's actually really important in places where there's no mammals that these seabirds cannot survive in places when, when, there's, when there's mammals. I, I think it was a missed opportunity to not actually use catfishing in, in the title, Sarah. Like, I think... <laughs> Catfishing for city turns or something. Catfishing for city turns. Like, it would have been picked up, like, on national media. That's right. You used to tell that. So, come on. Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. Yeah, the the poisoning thing is is what what gets people. But, I mean, the turnaround is just so dramatic. I mean, so dramatic. You're talking about these islands where, like, 85, 90% of the chicks are, are depredated by rodents. And then you remove those and suddenly you're like 800% increase in the number of chicks fledged. I mean, it's, it's unreal how quickly it turns around. You know, and stories like this are really important, I think, for people to recognize that we can fix things sometimes. That sometimes, once we yeah. recognize, sometimes, not all the time, <laughs> but, you know, this, the, the, the media landscape, especially around environmental issues now, is so negative and so depressing. Yeah. Um, and that's warranted, but it's also not the only way to tell the story. You know, I, I feel like people now are sort of removed from the generation in the 50s and 60s where the water was sludge and yeah. you couldn't breathe in places. And I'm glad, obviously, that we fix those things, but you sort of forget how bad things were and that yeah. we that we can fix things. Um, and so it's good to have reminders occasionally that, you know, when we identify the problems we've caused... Uh, and sort of address them, we can actually, we can address the harm. We can fix things um, mm-hmm. in some cases. Let's get to the, let's get to the business end speaking, of this conversation. Speaking of speaking trying of to fix, fix things. things <laughs> and perhaps not, uh, you know, this yeah. is not such a different story, really, <laughs> in some ways. 
I like Uh-oh. this. All right. I want to hear this Ruh-roh. take. Yeah. Let's no, do well, uh, well, okay. Well, so what we're talking about is de-extinction. De-extinction, in particular, the Dodo. There is a company out there called Colossal Biosciences, which is a classic that is so like a video game villain company <laughs> of a name. Right. They're a venture capital. <laughs> they're Colossal venture. Bi- I, I think Rex Luther used to work for Colossal Biosciences. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, it's on his, they are on described his as a headline-grabbing, venture-capital-funded juggernaut. All just great words right there. <laughs> um, and I should say, this is coming from an outstanding article in Scientific American um, that I'm looking at. But this colossal biosciences group was founded uh, way back in 2021. Um, <laughs> and they have some big goals of bringing extinct species back. Um, they want to try to bring back a mammoth. They want to try to bring back the thylacine, Tasmanian tiger. And now they have reported 150 million bones involved uh, put, put towards bringing back the dodo, the famously large uh pigeon relative from Mauritius that was killed off uh, by folks who moved into that island. The Marish, you know, uh, like a lot of island birds um, or island species didn't have a fear of humans and, um, and was killed off uh, from a variety of causes. Um, you know, the Jodo was a sort of famous catalyst for people's understanding of what extinction was. Yeah. It was, you know, a symbol, uh, you know, for better or for worse of, you know, of stupidity in some ways in naivete but also the fact that humans are able to uh, put something out of existence. And so it has always been, um, you, you know, on the forefront of what people think of when they think of extinct birds. And this um, colossal biosciences company says they're going to bring it back. And so now the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And there bad. are a couple... <laughs> there are a couple, well, a couple factors to, to it. The first chase of all, here. Yeah. first of all, just, just, this is not a slam dunk, right? I mean, this is, no. um, and this and the company gets into it. it. This is extremely difficult to do, uh, involving so how how hard it is to find an unfertilized uh, bird. This egg cell, you basically, you know, an egg is fertilized, and so it's hard. You need to get to that point scientifically, mm-hmm. uh, unlike mammals. Um, the sort of benefit, potentially, or easier way to deal with this, unlike a mammoth, say, which needs to gestate for like two years, um, you could, you know, sort of go quicker with some eggs, and so potentially you could move the science up. But but the article gets into some very interesting questions, and I think that's what we are hoping to talk about a little bit, of like, number one... Well, maybe maybe most importantly, is a dodo that is genetically a dodo or genetically mostly a dodo, but is born divorced from its ancestors and the sort of environment that it mm-hmm. evolved into? And I, a weird word is in my head, which is not right, but culture, sort of a culture inherent, you know, brought by a parents of a dodo who lived as a dodo and are dodos. Is that a dodo? And is that right to bring a creature into a world that doesn't share that um, environment and, and culture, for lack of a better word? I before you and I can see people licking their lips to jump in and say <laughs> I, I am brought back to an interview that I did on my little old blog ten years ago with Rick Wright from the ABA when when yeah. some people were proposing to bring back the passenger pigeon yeah. and at that point I was in favor of bringing back the passenger pigeon um, because I thought 
we made a mistake and we should be able to correct the mistake. And I, and in, I was presuming that, that these passenger pigeons would be passenger pigeons and that we could sort of integrate them back into the world as passenger pigeons. I do think in the 10 years I have changed, I think this is creepy and I think it's, I think it's sad and wrong to bring a dodo back without the other elements of dodo-ness that would allow it to be a dodo. And so I'll leave it there, but I will say I don't think it's a science worth... I don't think we should abandon the science because I, because I think more animals are going to go extinct, whether we like it or not. And I think if we have a way to potentially preserve somehow those species or allow ourselves to form a better world in the future, that species could potentially brought back in a better way, that we should keep that science around if it is indeed possible. Because I think that, I'm not saying we need to use it, but I'm saying that, and I see Sarah, Sarah is going to bite her microphone off. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think we should cut the science, if that makes sense. So, let me stop you, there and take my lumps. <laughs> you you propose we keep, and I am not debating you at all. You propose we keep this science for future use, where we will get to determine ethically which animals are appropriate to bring back and which ones aren't, and then also ignore the evolution of current species that exist by focusing on bringing back old species. The cute ones. Bring well, I didn't the say that ones, second part. Sarah. I didn't. I didn't say we should ignore anything. <laughs> well, I think you do because if you try and bring back old species and integrate them, you do interrupt an ecosystem that is evolving. Or because, like the dodo, they are talking about bringing back the dodo. We can just put it in a zoo. That's literally all you can do. You just yeah, put it in a true. zoo. That's all you can do because yep. you can't put it. You can't introduce it into an environment. No. You can't put it back on Mauritius. No. It's not the same could Mauritius. You? I mean, 400 I'm, years before we're 400 years later. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think you could. The passenger pigeon, I think, is a different story. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah, the dodo. I mean, this is this is purely just like rich people not having enough time or like yeah, having too much science. money. It's yeah. vanity science. It's a, yeah. They have $225 million. For the dodo. For the for. The colossal bioethics. Who they just is were... giving them this money? It's, it's oh, <laughs> you can look it up. I people just looked it up. Money. Yeah, people, people have too, have much, too money. much money. Yeah, yeah, two hundred twenty-five million dollars, and they just finished another round of funding in January. So people are yeah. into it. People are into it, but I think I think it's it. wrong, and that's I think that's why I have so, such a strong opinion. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but what if we? What if isn't? Is it not worthwhile to keep it as a, as an option in case we are able to make a, a better Mauritius, for lack of a better term? I mean, like, if what if we are able to produce a habitat that is suitable for dodos? Is that is it still then wrong? I don't know. Would we be able to even know what that habitat looks like? I mean, the dodo wasn't the only thing that went extinct. Right. Other stuff went extinct too, and stuff that we probably never knew about until that's true and so like you're putting a dodo in a place where that that stuff doesn't i mean it would be cool to see it in a zoo i guess i mean it's such a weird looking bird and that would be cool i mean if that's what it comes to it seems like a waste of that money but um i mean i guess from an interesting factor i, I would certainly like to see a live dodo but 
I know this is Jurassic Park, isn't it? This is Jurassic well, Park. So I was just going to say it. that's yeah. I was reading oh, this paper and I had like the Jurassic Park theme song, and then yeah, we got to right. a one, a one, like, one of your Doctor Malcolm, Here's Sam yeah. Neil with the glasses staring at the dinosaurs oh, yeah. for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was, you know, there was a moment when they were talking about the gene editing, and I could hear like the little <laughs> Mr. DNA with that Southern U.S. accent, yeah. you know, saying dinosaurs. You know, nice. and, and talking about like how to do this, it is it is incredibly complex, and and there are so many hilarious parallels to to Jurassic Park when talking yeah. about this, right? Because there were some massive leaps, like reconstructing you know DNA sequences with like other animals and stuff. Oh That's yeah, and like yeah, like, we're talking about. like the final version of the dodo will emerge from a pigeon that has been engineered to be the size of a dodo. Like, how how do you eggs do are that? similar sizes, okay? Right? No problem. Easy peasy. <laughs> you will just, yeah. we'll just, we'll just, we just dig in a, a pigeon. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, it's it's the, the classic, like, all this time, you know, wondering if you could do this. Did you spend any time thinking if you should do if this? You should, right? Like, yeah. the, the classic Dr. Malcolm yeah. line, yeah. right, in Jurassic Park. Uh, look, this is this is a colossal waste of money. It is, it is 100% a vanity project. Um, and I, you know, for sure, without question, this type of money and resources should be going to prevent, you know, current species like the dodo from, from mm-hmm. like that are on the same verge of extinction like the dodo was from going extinct. That's what we need to be doing with these resources. Now, I will add one caveat. Right. And it's a it's a different it's a different take than what Nick was saying. But there was a line in here that in this article, which was great, that that I I'm still thinking about. And it is this one. Um, in addition to developing a you know a dodo, I like how they they've launched three projects and they haven't completed one of them. They haven't done anything yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but developing Classic tools for avian project. genomics. So including genetic rescue of threatened species. By editing genetic diversity into species of animals with, uh, you know, shrunken populations. And I think that's a really interesting thing. So it's not only, you know, technology to recreate a dodo. We're also looking at this. So you could have a species that's Mm -hmm. about to disappear and maybe there's only a few breeding pairs and their genetic diversity is like dropped like significantly through inbreeding. Could you edit their genetic makeup so that they would have a better chance of survival going forward. Um, yeah. You edit out that That was an interesting yeah. throwaway in this article. And I actually yeah. want a whole article about that question. Because <laughs> yeah. that I think is, is one of the, the most interesting, not ridiculous elements of this. That, that I think it was kind of interesting. Whether that's, again, ethically sound or not, I, I don't know. But uh, it, did, it is a really interesting concept that I'd never really yeah. thought of before. Well, first of all, I I I I reject the the assumption that it's an either or. I mean, I don't think there should be money to one thing or another thing conservation. I think I think there should be money for all conservation. And so, like, do you count this as conservation, though? Well, so what about a situation? So you're like, why is it why is it okay to save a species where there's one left, but once it's extinct, we can't try to save it anymore? Like, like, so what if, what if we save the, we save the, and I, I'm not talking about real science. I'm talking about sort of in theory. What if we're able to save the information from a species? There's one left. We can't save it. It goes extinct. Then we are able to conserve the habitat, improve the conditions before it died. 
and say you were able to bring it back then. Is mm-hmm. that unethical? And is and how is that different than what we're talking about? I don't know. It, it's it's a different case. I, I what I'm saying is that like in this, it's the same thing with the rats on the seabird islands. Like humans, we need to recognize how badly we screwed things up, and I think we need to keep everything on the table to unscrew ourselves. And I'm not saying it's like it's the go-to option, but we're going to run out of options pretty soon. Fair enough. And I appreciate that you're arguing the devil's at ad- taking the devil's advocate position on this, Nick, um, for the sake of good, uh, good podcasting content. Nick, I'm um, sorry. I'm being so <laughs> mean to you right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I, I think the thing that really galls is that it's just so much money. Oh. And those of us who work in conservation or are sort of tangential to conservation work, like know how much that money could be put to really good practiced, you know, yeah. established uses. But and this it's just, isn't, it's just a noise. I mean, I get like, there are a million the other worse things. This, the idiots that are funding this, we're not going to give it to uh, any other conservation. Fair. Group, and they're, this they're, or exactly. like some robot that kills kids. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> robot it's, dog. This yeah, is not money a, that was, this is not like a money that was going to come to it's our true, parks. It's true. That's system. a fair point. Like, you know, it, it, like it, it, th- there's a million awful things that the venture capitalists could spend yeah. money on. And this is not yeah. necessarily as bad as those. Like, I don't know, turning children's so blood into life extending <laughs> serum or whatever yeah. but like it's still annoying <laughs> do you think they want that though like think about this if you can figure out how to bring back an extinct species can you figure out how to bring back a human like an individual yeah from maybe their that's individual? what they're trying to do i mean maybe this is secretly just all the start of trying to extend the life of some rich billionaire but this I think that a, I think there's a big difference, a though, right? Like I think, and and I think, but you know, you're right, Sarah, and and certainly that's like for sure. That's what people venture capitalists. I don't know. Does anyone? Is it, what is a venture capitalist? I don't know the venture capitalist no, like, yeah. podcast. I think so. it, you maybe know, they do. I, think I don't know movies. But anyway, um, look, the, the, I think the big issue here is that when they're done, and you know, and they gene uh, to quote like one of the experts cited in the article, and they gene edit the hell out of you know this dodo um is it actually going to be a dodo when they're done and the answer is no right this is just like though and again we'll just go back to jurassic park right but like you know first jurassic world movie right like that obviously you know that's not a real dinosaur they just sort of engineered a dinosaur with all these traits right i know god but you know it could camouflage (laughs) so that was something um so is is it really going to be a dodo the answer is no it's going to be a bit of a muppet right and it's going to be a genetically engineered they're going to breed them for pets vanity muppet and and it's and but that is very different so bringing something that's gone and trying to do it is different than cloning something that's alive right and there's there's certainly more options of what you can do uh, with something that's still like round, right? So, yeah. so Nick, to your question, for sure. Yeah, and that's what I'm like, focused on. Yeah. yeah, so that's, but that's a little bit different than what they're trying to do. Sure. I, I would argue, yeah. But they're also maybe, uh, I don't know, you know, p- part of it they talked about is that it's very hard to find DNA from dodos that's that's valuable at all. There may be other yeah. species. I'm, I'm just Frogs. saying, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to completely ignore it because things are going to get worse before they get better, perhaps. I think my current issue is just the ethics behind it, because then you have the determination of what species are important, who makes those decisions, and just ethically, like, reintroducing a species that has, like, how many can you make? Can you make, like, two, and then they're supposed to repopulate, and they have, like, no one else, and I don't know. Edit out the genetic bottleneck, and you're home free. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) 
Just, and they I just get they, eaten by sailors after like a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, gonna, right. gonna, <laughs> they reintroduce them and they're gone. Some, in some, days. some Dutch sailor reenactors that make land their rat outside and then it just goes. <laughs> Let it without a leash on. Well, they should put them on Lehua Islet. There you go. That there could you be go. They, Problem there you go. solved. Yeah. Full That's circle. Right. <laughs> Actually, hold on. Can I ask a question now? Think about it. What was the problem with Jurassic Park, the movie, that like if Nedry hadn't shut the power off or whatever, would that still be bad? Or would we have still liked it? I would have gone. Yeah. Never mind. Maybe let's cut this part out. Cut this part out. I, <laughs> no, let's talk more about Jurassic Park. I mean, it was obviously bad once everybody started getting murdered and stuff, but like, yeah, the death was before I, that. It was totally that fine. Yeah. I don't know, everyone seemed to be pretty excited. <laughs> Uh, as, as stimulating as that conversation was, uh, let's move on to the question of the month because it is, it is February. It is the month for Valentine's Day. Uh, while humans are handing out cards, flowers, and chocolates, we have nothing on birds which have famously impressive and elaborate courtship displays. So the question I posed to the panel this month, what is your favorite bird courtship behavior? Who wants to go? Who wants to go for it, Sarah? Uh, this it. striped cuckoo because it's right. a lula feathers. It constantly oh, yeah. sticks them out like little hands. Like he's um, oh yeah, they do. Yeah, that's like an aggressive right. business deal. Um, <laughs> so that is that is one. that's because they're little like they're little black feathers. Aggressive yeah, business they look deal. Weird. He's yeah. like shaking shaking your hand. Yeah, yeah, it's I love that one so much. I think it's yeah. so cute and just like very small too. It's not really a huge display. So I like that one. Yeah, good one. Love it. I just got, I don't know, this is my favorite. I just got back from Puerto Rico and I spent a lot of time in close proximity to greater Antillean grackles. And they were displaying, and I just, they were, they are so, it's so unattractive, the sort of (laughs) position they make themselves in. They would do it every time we see them. And I'm looking, I just Google pictures of like greater Antillean grackles. And they like hunch up and like, like their beak out a little bit. And and you could just tell, even to the females that they were displaying to, that they were like, ah, I guess this guy's fine. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's fast, endlessly fascinating sort of how some species, um, you know, what they get, get out of a display, you know, and what they, the information they take from it. Cause the information I take from it is that I don't want to be anywhere close to this guy. (laughs) Very pushy. Um, I'm going to have to go. I, I I thought a fair bit about this, you know, and you're so like birds of paradise and mannequins and like all sorts of bower birds, they gifts, right? Like there's all sorts of great stuff. But, you know, if I was to really, you know, pull it out, I think it would have to be the, the, the display that I think is one of the best. It's got to be buff-breasted sandpiper in the, oh, up yeah. in the Arctic. Like, come on. This is, and if, if people haven't seen it, you got to Google it, right? It's the, these, the males, you know, puff themselves up. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's a whole bunch of females and they're trying, all the males are trying to show off. And the way they attract the females is they've got these incredibly white, bright white. I'd be interested to see, you know, the white difference between these and, and you know, woodcock tail feathers, but yeah. um, the incredibly bright white wing pits. And, and as the females get closer, he pulls the wings out and then he puts them straight up into the air and shows off the bright white wing pits. And all the all the females just go crazy, like they just go, <laughs> they just go frantic. They're like, "That is the whitest white I have ever yeah. seen," and and that's the entire display. And he waits until they get within like inches of him, and then he throws up the throws up the the wings to show and off the wing painting, painting. Well, yeah, females. and the females, it's like an Elvis concert or something. It's just it's ridiculous. <laughs> like it's it's 
It is <laughs> the mo- one of the most hilarious bird displays out there. Um, so I'm going to say Buff Bryce the Sandpiper. Check out a video. Um, but I got to say, Nick, when you're talking about grackles, you know, that's actually a species when, when people are talk to me about, you know, birds of paradise, they'd love to see like really cool displays like that. I say, you know, you should check out the common grackles in your yard in the mm. springtime. The way the, 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 the males strut around, they do all sorts of things with their yeah. feathers and like showing off the colors. Like, you know, people, and I, I always say this to people that like always complain about grackles eating all their bird seed or scaring the other <laughs> birds. I'm like, no, no. Like common grackle is actually a one of the most beautiful birds in your backyard, but B is uh, it, their display, their sort of breeding display is incredible to watch. Like really fascinating, fascinating birds. Yes, I will not knock grackles. I love them. I do think they're some of the most underrated birds we have. And I very much as a Mainer look forward to them coming back in droves next month. They're sort of the the one of the key indicators of spring out here. I just was seeing these greater Antillean grackles and it's just like a hunchback, <laughs> like, like a, it's just angry sort of a yell. And uh, that's yeah. just stuck in my mind. Huh. My favorite. I, I have a uh, one, um, one elaborate one and one uh, that I just enjoy seeing every time I see it uh, that I find around here. Uh, the elaborate one is um, you mentioned bowerbirds. It's hard not to choose a bowerbird. They're so nuts when it comes to their, uh, displays. Um, my favorite is probably flame bower, bowerbird, which actually can dilate its pupils. Like it changes its pupils inner interchangeably what? on each eye. Um, like makes them big and small and big and small whenever the female comes up. It's the most bizarre. Uh, sort I'm of good that right now. Yeah, you're good. There's a good uh, David Attenborough uh, video of it of a flame bowerbird at its bower doing like its weird. Uh, it's got a bright yellow eye and it makes the black iris like pupil I mean really big and small and really small it's cool and also um, you know the one the, probably the bird that that I like the most around here um, yellow breasted chat with their big old goofy moth flights that they do when they uh, when they display um, and also the crazy sounds that they make um, the yellow breasted chat one of my favorite birds just in general period love, hmm. love a chat and uh, yeah they have a cool display so that's my favorite um, anyone out there who's listening, if you want to send me your favorites, let me know on uh, Twitter. We'll do a, we'll do a run of your favorite bird displays. There's so many good ones. Um, I didn't even, men- uh, I'm mentioning it now. I'm smuggling in all these extra birds that I really enjoy. Uh, it's a prairie chickens last year. It's so weird mm. and grotesque that if you step outside for a step outside of yourself for a minute, um, and just think about someone who's never seen this stuff before <laughs> looking at it for the first time. Oh, yeah. So bizarre. Yeah, like sa- sage grouse displays, right? Like, oh, it's the weirdest yeah. thing. And the, the thing about grouse thing. is it's so embarrassing, so right? It's, it is, it's more public, you know, and there, there's yeah. a lot more like just a rejection uh, involved <laughs> with those, you know, that's that's hard. I want to shout out, I want to shout out Greaves too for the, yes, some of the great Greaves yeah, work out there. Oh, so many good yeah bird displays um please please let us know yours if you want to uh put them in the comments to this post or or on social media we'll catch you well we'll wrap this up thank you so much sarah and jody and nick it's always great to talk always great to talk to you um and i'm I'm glad that you were able to join me for this one have a great valentine's day have a great february have a great spring spring is on the way i'm sure the the birds are they're coming you can find all these great people on social media and I'll have a link to them and the the topics that we talked about in the show notes. Please check that out. Thanks. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Yeah. Great chatting Bye. with you all. Take care. Bye. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazine's discounts to partners like Beautio Books and Princeton University Press and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to David Ackerman of Cincinnati, Ohio, Richard Cazares of City of Industry, California, Jim Sierra of Cincinnati, Ohio. What are the odds? Two Cincinnati, Ohio's. And Beth Davis of Norfolk, Virginia, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if this whole genetic manipulation of extinct birds ends with Elon Musk's brain in the body of a waterfowl, an Elon Musk duck, if you will. Technical production is by John Lowry, who knows that if Musk does something, the other billionaires will too, inevitably resulting in a Jeff Bezos spray. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who is currently buying stock in Birdshirt Hathaway and is quite bullish on CEO Warren Buzzard. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere, as American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. I urge all listeners to please put reflective stickers on their windows out of concern for Pi Build Gates, who frequently flies into them. Questions, comments, podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.